Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. How are you guys today? Good, good, good. Well, I want to introduce someone too. They are not coming on to our staff, but they've been dear friends of Julie's and mine for quite a long time. And it's Craig and Diane Hodgkins are sitting right here. Are you going to... I know, I know. Craig's cool with that. Diane hates it. But they have actually the distinction of being married by me and having the biggest screw-up I ever had in performing a wedding ceremony. So we got near the end of their ceremony, and I had forgotten to do the ring exchanges. And uh, Craig looked at me, and he was like, the rings. And I was so much like, just let it pass. We'll do it in the office afterwards. And I think he thought... This won't count if we don't do the rings. So I had to stop the whole ceremony, tell everyone I had forgotten it. We exchanged the rings. And then as I walked out, our sound guy forgot to take my microphone off as I was outside of the building. And I want to tell you something I am proud of. I did not swear as I walked out. But somebody came up to me a little bit later and said, you're still hot. You're still on. So anyway, that was good. And your marriage still counts, right? We'll show the video next week. All right. So if any of you want somebody to do your wedding, uh, Lo would love to do that. Okay. So you're still married. It's a good thing. It took. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than me. All right. So, uh, well, we showed this video, and um, it is always good to get sort of an outside look of how the church is seen. We kind of maybe know how people inside the church see it, but how do people outside the church see it? And a few years ago, Gallup did a very extensive poll with people that were unchurched. And I want to bring up the top results that came uh, as they asked people, what do you think of when you think of church? What characteristics would you describe the church with? And these were the ones uh, that were some of the top ones. I've just listed them in alphabetical order, but I want you to look at those. And I want you to sort of think, if I had to put that list in order according to the most answered or the ones that were most prevalent, how would you put that list in order? In other words, which ones would be the most and which ones would be the least? I'll give you just a second because I'm going to give you the results in just a second. And these results that I'm going to give you were given by people ages 16 to 29. In other words, a generation probably younger than a lot of us, maybe not all of us, but younger than a lot of us, the next generation gave these answers. So they said that anti-homosexual, 91% said that is the main thing I would think of when I think of church. Then judgmental and hypocritical. Then we have a positive one, has good values and principles. Another one, friendly. Then a negative one, insensitive to others. And finally, offers hope for the future is way down there uh, compared to the rest of them. And that's sort of a sobering thing to think of, that the church doesn't necessarily have a great reputation. And in fact, some of you may know that firsthand. It may be the reason why you left church uh, when you were a kid or why your parents said, we're not going to church anymore. And they just said, no, we're not going that direction. Uh, Maybe your grandparents walked away from church because of some of these feelings that they had about how the church operated and what the church stood for. And it's an interesting thing that we live in a culture where the church is such a part of the institution of our culture, but... Uh, As it said in the video, in North America, the church is going down. 
The church is dying. People are, are as spiritual as they've ever been, but they don't look to the church for spiritual answers, which is just so amazing to me. Now, if you have your Bibles, we want you to turn to John chapter 1. We're in the book of Acts. We'll get there in a second, but I want to look at something in John chapter 1. So uh, get out your Bibles, open them up. These are great things to bring. And by the way, uh, we have Bibles for sale now because we are now using a new version. We've been telling you about this, the 2011 NIV, New International Version um, and this is the one that we're going to use from now on. So we actually have them out in the lobby. They're 25% off for this month. So if you need to get a new Bible, I'd really encourage you to do it. And then you'll always be lined up with what we show on the screen. Okay? Good? All right. So pull out your Bibles. Turn to John 1. And uh, let me explain why I think the church suffers. And it has to do with two words, grace and truth. And both of those are great words. But let me tell you how the church works when it starts to neglect one of those. When we're a church with no grace, what we tend to be seen as is judgmental, narrow-minded, basically telling everyone else that we've got it right, you've got it wrong, we're going to heaven, you're going to hell. And you can see how unappealing that kind of a message is. How many people would sort of say, I don't know that I want to be part of a group that thinks that way. And in fact, that is such a widespread feeling that many people have just a wrong image about the church. Uh, years ago, I was uh, in a restaurant, and the waitress that was helping us, I had known a little bit from just being at this restaurant a few times. And she came up to me and she said, I know that you're a pastor and I want to talk to you. And so we talked for a few minutes and she said, basically, I need God in my life. I need to get back connected with God. I've made a mess of my life and I need to get it back on track. And I know that God is the answer. And she said, what do you think I should do? And so we talked for a minute about that. And then I said, well, why don't you come to our church? And she said, really? Can I come to your church? I said, I'd love you to come to our church. And she said, well, I'm going to that. And I said, great. You know, this Sunday, just come. And she said, well, no, not this Sunday. And then what she said, um, I'll never forget it. She said, uh, before I come, I need to clean up my life a little bit. Let me get my life together, and then I'll feel comfortable coming to your church. And I said, no, 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 you don't need to clean up your life. In fact, if you clean up your life too much, you won't fit in with the rest of us. You know, just come exactly as you are. That's not the point. The point isn't to get your life together before you go to church. But no matter how much I talked to her, I could not convince her that she was ready for church because she had an image of what church was like. And though she wouldn't have used these words, she would say, a church is a place where there is no grace. And so if I don't have it together, I'm going to be butchered there. Now, we can go the other side, too, because a church that has no truth, and a lot of people would say that's a problem, too, a church that shows no kind of truth, because aren't there moral imperatives that the Bible gives? Aren't there uh, sort of standards that God wants his people to live with? In other words, he doesn't want everyone who's going to heaven to live like they're going to hell, right? He doesn't want them to be those kinds of people. And so the question is, so how do you make these things work? How do you balance these two things, grace and truth? How do you make a church really uh, get these in line in the right way? 
And I want you to look now at a passage, because this is an interesting thing. John, who was one of uh, Jesus' disciples, wrote years after Jesus had died. He wrote this in his gospel. He gave kind of a summary statement uh, about something that was true of Jesus. And so in John 1.14, he said this, uh, We have seen his glory, Jesus' glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, and if you have it there, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And so let me tell you the first thing that we mess up as a church. We think we need to balance grace and truth. But when John talks about Jesus, it didn't say that Jesus balanced grace and truth. It said that Jesus was what? Full of grace and truth. In other words, he didn't say, oh, a little too much grace over here. You know, let's pump up the truth over here. You know, the truth is kind of dominating. Let's get that down. We'll bring this one up. That wasn't the way that Jesus did it. He was full of both of them all of the time. In other words, somehow he could synchronize both of those so that they worked perfectly together. Here's the other thing that I think is a really important point to get, and it's given several times in this text, and it's given in other places too. The order. The order is grace and truth. And here's the point. Truth rides great on the back of grace. But grace always needs to lead. When truth leads, listen, when truth leads, We inflict truth on people, right? When truth is the first thing that people hear about us, truth doesn't come across as something that's helpful, as something that sort of leads to life, as, you know, the truth will set you free. No, when truth is the first thing that people hear, hey, you've got to clean up your life. Hey, that lifestyle is totally unacceptable. Hey, what you've done to your body really is gross. You shouldn't look that way. Hey, the way you're kind of making a mess of your life, that habit is terrible. You know, that's inflicting truth on people. Nobody wants that. And even though those might be true statements, nobody wants to to respond to that. You see, truth rides great on the back of grace. If grace leads, truth is a wonderful thing to follow. And that was one of the points here. When we look at Jesus, it was grace and truth, full of grace and truth. There's a wonderful story in a book called Blue Like Jazz. And it talks about a young woman named Penny. And she had been raised in Oregon by hippie parents. She had never gone to church in her whole life. She had a lifestyle that was kind of out of control, which she would admit. And uh, she said uh, at one point when she was talking about church and Jesus... She said, if you rolled all the Christians, I always pictured if you rolled all the Christians in the world into one person, here's what I'd know about that person. That person would not be relevant to my life, and that person would hate me. That's what she thought. If you put all Christians together, that was the image that she had. She went to a college, and she ended up having a a college roommate that was a Christian. And so just gradually, they built a friendship And eventually, this Christian roommate said, what if we studied the book of Matthew together to just see what Jesus was like, okay? Kind of strip away what the church says, strip away how the Christians act. Let's just look at Jesus. 
And there's this wonderful uh, description of their studies. They would study the book of Matthew, and they would eat chocolates and smoke cigarettes. And they would study it. And she says this great thing. She always said, I always thought Jesus was kind of a salad kind of guy. And he's not. He's a chocolate kind of guy, which I think is such a cool description. But as they finished going through the book of Matthew, here was the uh, revelation that came to Penny. Penny said, you know what I think now? I think that if Jesus was here, that he'd like me. Jesus would like me. And he would help me live a better life. Full of grace and truth. And when the church does that right, the church is a powerful, compelling movement. Now, I want us to get into the book of Acts, and we've been looking at the book of Acts. Let me give you just a quick review if you've not been with us, so that you're sort of tracking with us. But we looked the very first week that the church is not a building. The church is not an institution. The church is not a hierarchy. The church is not a meeting time on Sunday mornings. The church literally means gathering. It is us as a group as we come together. And the gathering is based on an event that took place, which is that Jesus died and rose again, that he was resurrected, the very first church. That's the reason they came together. And what they realized is that God wanted them to tell this message to other people. So that's the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to tell the message that Jesus has died and risen again, that he is everyone's savior if they are willing to put their faith or their trust in him. And it created a movement. And the movement actually became very dynamic, very powerful. A lot of people joined this movement early on. Then when we saw the next week is that what God calls his people to be is he wants us to be great, big, and bold. Great, big, and bold. He wants us to stand for Jesus, and he wants us to do it in a bold way. But what we realize is it's not that we're great, it's that we serve a great God. And not that we're big, but that we're able to pray big prayers. And not even that we're bold, but as the Holy Spirit sort of nudges us forward, we do it in a way of boldness. And it actually has a huge impact. And then last week, what we looked at is that God calls all of us to participate in this movement. That God's wired all of us to have our part and do our part of it. And we used a a phrase, or we discovered a phrase last week. What was the phrase again when we do this well? It's called... All right, be bold. It is called raise the dust. When we raise the dust, it's this idea of a horse galloping down a dusty road and the dust gets raised. And it's the idea that when we do what God wants us to do, we have a huge impact on everyone around us. It's like dust gets just flown everywhere. We raise the dust. And that's something, and incidentally, a bunch of you signed up to help around here last week. Thank you so much. In fact, some of you aren't in here because you're out there raising the dust with our kids. A cool thing. So um, we learned that. Okay, so let me just set up what the story is today. The story as we continue is that uh, persecution hits the church in a major wave. And in fact, it sort of hits a flashpoint. And for the first time, somebody is killed for standing for Jesus, a guy named Stephen. And Stephen is killed, and persecution spreads throughout Jerusalem, and all of a sudden the Christians are leaving Jerusalem because it's a dangerous place to uh, to live. But it's a good thing because the gospel now, or the message of Jesus, is spreading as these people move out into the countryside, into different areas of Palestine, and even out of Israel altogether. And so that's a good thing. Then there's this guy. His name is Saul, and he hates Christians. He hates Christians so much that he is the chief persecutor of Christians, 
And uh, he is going out, actually, to round some up and put them in prison. He's going to Damascus, and he's riding on his donkey, and literally Jesus knocks him off his donkey onto his butt. You could say it another way, knocked him off his ass onto his, but whatever you want to say it, that's exactly what happened. And Saul, who then changes his name to Paul, uh, becomes the champion of spreading the message. Not just in Palestine, not just in Israel, but he actually goes around the whole Mediterranean world spreading the word. And he's very powerful in doing that. Many people are converted, and this is where our story picks up. So Saul, or Paul rather, has been going around the Roman world. He's been spreading the word, and he's up in a place called Antioch, Syrian Antioch. Let me show you a map of where Antioch is. If you go down here, you'll see on the bottom right-hand corner Jerusalem, right? You all see Jerusalem, yeah? Okay, your eyes are that good. And if you go directly north, right up the coast there, you'll see Syrian Antioch up in the corner, right? You see it? Okay, that's where they are. And so many Gentiles, non-Jewish people, have become Christians that is just amazing everyone, but it brings up a huge controversy. And here's the controversy. Do people that become Christ followers first have to become Jewish? That was the big, believe it or not, that was the huge debate. To become a Christian, because Christ was the Jewish Messiah, does someone first have to become a Jew, and then they can become a Christian? Do they have to join the Moses Club before they join the Jesus Club, basically, is the way that it's set up. And so there's a huge controversy, and the Gentiles are saying, we don't really want to become Jewish, we just want to follow Jesus. Paul and Barnabas, who are up there, are saying, we don't think that they should become Jewish, but there are Jewish uh, people that have converted from Judaism, some of the priests are saying, no, no, you need to. You need to be part of the Moses Club first. And we'll look in a second as to what that exactly meant and why that was something that was a huge debate. But let me just tell you, as we go into Acts 15, this is the most important chapter in the whole book of Acts. And in fact, we're going to read a story that if this had turned out differently, none of you, probably none of you, would be sitting here today. None of you would probably be Christians. In fact, Christianity probably uh, would look far different today than it actually looks because most of you are Gentiles. Most of you are not Jews. Most of you are Gentiles, non-Jews. And this is our story. This is our story. So go to Acts 15, and we're going to pick it up. Here's what happens is that Paul and Barnabas are up there. There's this huge debate that breaks out. Do these new Gentile converts need to become Jews first, and then they can become Christians? What are the entrance requirements to the church? And uh, the debate becomes so significant that Paul and Barnabas actually go back down to Jerusalem, about 250 miles, for a huge meeting of the church leadership. And they're going to decide this once and for all. How does this thing work out? And if you look in verse 5, here's how it starts. It says, Then some of the believers, this is in this meeting now that's set up, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so there were Pharisees, actually, Jewish leaders that had converted. They'd become Christians. They realized that Jesus was the Messiah. So that was great news. But they also had this bias that everybody needed to become a Jew first. Now, 
I want you to put yourself in the place of a Gentile man. Here's the word that comes to you. You've heard that it's grace. You've heard that it's just believing that Jesus died for your sins, that you put your faith in Jesus, and that is going to save you. But now what you hear is there's one other little thing that you need to know. And that is that you need to have a little surgery if you're going to join the Jesus Club because that's what the Moses Club requires. And just imagine the impact that that would have all of a sudden. Paul and Barnabas are looking and saying, you know, there's this huge momentum of people coming to Jesus. This could really dampen things. This could really kill the whole momentum thing. Our new members class, you know, I'm sort of picturing that we're not going to have any men in the new members class. It's going to be all women and children. Uh, This could really be a problem. So you've got to put that into the historical context. That's a huge deal. Huge deal. And then the second thing is they have to follow the whole law of Moses. Now, all of you know the Ten Commandments. Most of you probably agree with the Ten Commandments. Uh, Most of us don't keep the Ten Commandments, but we all agree they're a good thing to keep. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the Ten Commandments plus 613 other laws that come out of the Old Testament. Not only that, there are the interpretations of those laws called the Mishnah, which are huge 12 volumes of rules surrounding these 612 laws that all fall out of what they call the Ten Commandments. And here's what they're saying. First, there's the surgery issue. Secondly, you need to follow these laws. And then you can become a Christian. If you do that, you can follow Christ. And you can see why there was a lot of angst about that, why there was lots of... Now, some of you will say, that is so ridiculous. How could anyone think that that's required? You know what? This seeps into the church all the time. So let me ask you a question. Should somebody who's a homosexual be able to come into our church? There's a lot of people that would say, you know, you've got to kind of clean that thing up. You've got to straighten that out, as it were. How about people that have, like, you know, they've sort of done all these things to their body and all this kind of stuff, and they look way different than us. Maybe they have really bad habits. How about, do you think people who smoke should be allowed to come into the church? It's such a disgusting habit. And the Bible says it is a sin to smoke, right? Well, I know it's somewhere in there. But whatever. You know, shouldn't they have to clean up? How about somebody that's, like, strung out on drugs? Shouldn't they have to kind of fix that? How about just people that are annoying? Those people in our neighborhood, you know, those people in our neighborhood that, you know, they they totally thumb their nose at the association rules about how their yard should be kept, and their grass is knee-high, and they have, you know, tires and stuff, and it's like they're driving down the property valley. Shouldn't they have to, like, come on, get a clue. Fix that up, then we're okay. It is so easy for us to put prerequisites on what somebody needs to be or how somebody needs to act, how somebody needs to appear before we're going to let them into the church. And whether we say it directly or it's just a glance or sort of, you know, sort of dismissing somebody, how easy is it for us to do that? And I just want to say it's no different than what they did back then. It's not more absurd 
than what they said. So we're all real interested to see how the church, how does the leadership respond to this issue that comes up? As we go down, it says in verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up, addressed them, said, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now, what Peter's referring to is uh, about 10 years earlier, God had actually in a dream told him to go to a man named Cornelius that was a Gentile. This was the first time that this happened. And God gave him explicit instructions and also gave Cornelius explicit instructions in a dream that Jesus wanted to save Cornelius and his household. And so that's what Peter's saying there. He said, it wasn't our choice. This was actually Jesus' choice. Jesus chose to give his word, his saving gospel, to the Gentiles. So he said, okay, so it wasn't our choice. It was God's choice. God's the one that set this thing up first. And then as we continue, it says in verse 8, God who knows the heart, God who knows the heart, You see, this is a problem for you and me. We don't know the heart of people. We know the appearance of people. We know the behavior of people. But God is able to see into somebody's heart. So where we see an appearance that maybe is repulsive to us, or at least makes us stand back, or at least categorize somebody and say, well, they're that kind of person, God looks right through that and says, but I see their heart. Or we see a behavior and we go, that behavior is so abysmal. It is something that God would so much hate. There's no way. It would almost be like if I befriended them that I'm condoning this behavior. And yet God is stirring in their heart because God looks in the heart. And then this amazing statement is said as this this closes what uh, Peter's saying here. He says, for God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. And here's, you guys, this is such an important thing to get. God changes hearts very often before behavior changes, before appearances change, before lives are cleaned up. God steps in And he changes the heart. He starts to purify or renovate the heart. And then eventually, outwardly, you start to see these things. And God has a plan. See, God knows that that's the way he works. So when we stand up and we say, but they don't look right, or they don't behave right, or they don't talk right, their lives are messed up. God's saying, don't you understand? I'm doing something on the inside right now. You know, cut me some slack. Give them some space. Accept them in. Let them be changed from the inside out. And then Peter, I think, makes the most compelling thing when he says this in verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? And see, this now becomes very personal. Here's what Peter says. Okay, you want to play truth first? You want to play clean up your life first? You want to talk about behaviors and appearances and words all being in line before God will even look at you? 
How would that work for you? What would happen to you if we played by those rules? And he's talking to a Jewish audience. He said, okay, so you're saying that they need to first get circumcised. You're already circumcised, so you're cool on that. Saying you need to follow the Ten Commandments. How are you doing on that? Maybe you're okay. How about all 613 laws? How are you doing on those? And the point that Peter makes that anybody in the audience would have known right away, well, I need a little grace on those. I mean, there are 613 of them. And Peter says, exactly, exactly. You know what? You are dependent on grace. It's not that you followed your laws before Jesus would accept you. It's not that you are a good Jewish person. And that's the reason that Jesus said, okay, you did the Moses Club so well, come into my club. He said, no, you are totally dependent on grace. It's grace for you. And it's grace for them. That's how this works. And so he says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. In verse 12, then it says, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Then when they had finished, James spoke up. Now, let me tell you about James. James was the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, okay? So Mary had Jesus first, right? Okay, we know that story, Christmas. Uh, Then she and Joseph had other children, and James was one of them. So James was raised with Jesus as an older brother. And you know what James believed about Jesus? That he was the son of God. Now let me just ask you a question. What would your brother have to do (laughs) to convince you that he's the son of God? And you're sitting there, there's no way. I don't care how many people he can feed with a loaf of bread. I don't care what he can walk on. I don't care. I know my brother is not the son of God. Well, somehow James was around Jesus and he said, yeah, this guy's the son of God. He eventually, James, became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he speaks up and he says, brothers, listen to me. Simon, another word for Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people uh, for his name from the Gentiles. And then he goes on to say, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Very significant statement. It's the reason you're sitting here today. It's the reason that you accepted Jesus, because if the church had decided that it was going to make it difficult if the church had decided that circumcision was going to be required, if the church had decided 10 commandments, 613 laws, the Mishnah on top of it, I'm telling you this, the gospel would have gotten stuck in mud. It would not have moved. People would have said, I can't possibly do all that truth before I get some grace. But James says, no, we're not going to make it tough for them because here's the reason. God chose them just the way he chose us. This is God's work. His fingerprints are on this. We don't dare stand against it. What a huge risk. How would we test God in this way? We would never do it. And so James sits down and he says, so here, here are the rules then. Okay, we're not going to do 613 rules. Let's talk about the critical rules here. Here's rule one. Instead, we should write to them telling them to A, number one, Abstain from food polluted by idols. 
Okay, it doesn't have a lot of meaning to us, but those were things that were done in the temple. And uh, when that was done, it was a huge problem for Jewish Christians who did idolatry was something that they couldn't participate in. And so it was a temple sacrifice, uh, sacrificial system that it says, all right, you can't eat that food if it's been sacrificed to an idol. Number one. Number two, uh, refrain from sexual immorality. But this isn't even all sexual immorality. It's sexual immorality that is connected with temple prostitution. In other words, that was part of their worship, ways of worshiping back then. And so James says, well, we're going to cut that out. No more of the temple prostitution stuff. Number three, uh, don't eat the meat of strangled animals. Another thing that was done in pagan worship is they would strangle the animals to death. And number four, don't drink blood. I know, it's very tempting, but they say don't drink blood. And that was another part of the temple worship. Now, here's really, here's basically what James is saying. Because then you go, okay, what's number five? We're not even up to the Ten Commandments. What's number five? There is no number five. Those are the four things. Those are the only things we're going to tell them. You might say, why? Those are so obscure. Here's what they're saying. Don't continue in pagan worship. That's what we're saying. You've got to stop continuing in pagan worship if you're going to do this. It will lead you astray. It does not lead you to Jesus. And it offends the Jewish people that are converts. And we don't want that. And that's it. That's it? That's it. That's all. So great. It says the letter goes out. And can you imagine the people up in Antioch as the the letter, the mail carrier comes up and says, we're going to read to you the letter of what is required now before you can become a Christian. And all the men are crossing their legs and they're wondering, oh my gosh, what are they going to say here? What about circumcision? And they say, here's the four rules. And it says uh, in verse 31, they were exceedingly glad. (laughs) Can you imagine? It's like, woo, that is so nice. All right, so it's such a cool thing. So basically what the church says is, listen, you don't have to become a Jew first. You don't have to clean up your act before you come to Christ or before you come into the church. You come as you are because grace leads and then truth follows. It's not that truth is unimportant. Truth follows. And I want to just point out two things that I hope are lessons learned for us in our church. As we're getting our church started, what are the applications for this? And here's the first one. The first one is we have got to be so careful about not becoming insider-focused. It is so easy for us to set all of our rules and drive our whole church according to those of us that are on the inside of the church. And I'll just tell you, because I've been a pastor for a long time, there is such a compelling reason to do that. Let me just tell you, when we make a decision that people don't like in the church, I'll tell you that I never get somebody who's from outside of the church who comes in and says, I really have a problem with that. Your music is just way too loud. I never get a non-Christian, unchurched person that tells me that our music is too loud, or they don't like this policy, or they don't like the direction the church is going. It always comes from insiders, and that's fine. I mean, we've got a lot vested, and, but what I'm telling you is it's so easy for us to start making every decision sort of based on what insiders are saying. And here's what I want to tell you. We cannot be a church that makes every decision based on what's best for those of us that have already become Christians. Some of our decisions have to be based on the people that will never complain, but who will never come. That's the first thing. And let me tell you the best way you can participate in this. If you come week after week, 
month after month, year after year, and never bring in somebody who is not a Christian into our church, you will eventually not see things through the eyes of anyone but yourself. Have you ever brought somebody to church who's not a Christian? Don't you look at the service totally different? Every single thing. Like if you brought somebody today, maybe, maybe you brought somebody today and they're sitting there and they're, they're like, this guy's going really long. And you're like, God, Kevin could just cut it off. It would be so great, which I will do in just a second. Promise. Uh, it, you know, it, or, you know, the, the music was so sort of churchy today. And I never noticed that before, but I don't know. I don't know if my friend really, here's the thing. And here's what I'm challenging you. You've got to be bold. If you want our church to be sensitive to the people that are on the outside, then bring people that are on the outside because it will make you sensitive. And that's really what we need. We don't need me to be sensitive. Well, we need me to be sensitive too. We all need to be sensitive though. And I'm, you know, this is our time of year. People will come to church for Easter that would never consider it. This is, they're singing our song this month. Bring somebody. That is the best way that we will not become insider-focused. Second, let's let grace lead. Okay? Truth is important, but grace needs to lead. People need to know that we accept them, that we want them, before they need to be told what God expects from them. I'm just telling you, it is, it's a much better strategy, for one, but it's the way that Jesus did it. Do you remember the woman that was caught in adultery that's brought to Jesus? You know, there's never any argument in that story about whether she had committed adultery or not. Because it says, actually, in the story, she was caught in the very act. I guess it was beyond, you know, beyond debate. She was an adulteress. But do you remember the first thing that Jesus does? He stands up and protects her. He basically pushes off the people that are saying truth first by saying, okay, you want truth first? If you've not broken the truth, throw the first stone. And they couldn't do it. But he doesn't leave it without. What's the last thing that he says to her? Go and sin no more. There's a place for truth. It just always leads with grace. Grace is the first part. And we want to be that kind of church. We lead with grace. We accept people in. We deal with the messiness. We don't categorize people out. And again, I want to challenge you. Who is it that you're building into? Who are you thinking? They're far from God, but I'm just going to love on them. I'm just going to show them the love of Jesus. I'm going to give them a lot of grace. And we'll we'll see how it goes. Who are you doing that with? Because here's the truth. We all need grace first. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, looked across the table to 12 men. One of them would actually betray him and would begin a series of events that would lead to Jesus being tortured and killed on a cross. One of them was in that room. Another one, his very best friend, denied that he even knew Jesus three times before the night was out. 
the rest of them all turned tail and bailed. When they could have stood for Jesus, they bailed. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, we're going to celebrate something today. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I'm giving this to you. Even though, if I was to go with the truth strategy first, none of you would deserve this. None of you. Within 12 hours, you guys are all going to totally fail. You're going to make as big of a mistake as you could make. You're going to sin with a capital S. And yet tonight, I'm extending grace to you. And we need our ushers to come and uh, to start spreading uh, the communion. We're going to take communion today. Because one of the best ways we become grace-first kind of people is recognizing that we're grace-first needy. We need grace-first. We need to know that Jesus accepts us even when we're not perfect. And we, we stake our eternity on that. We stake our eternity on that. So here's what I'd like to do. Um, they're going to start spreading uh, the communion elements. You're going to get both the bread and the cup at the same time. Just hold them. We'll take them together. So sort of do the little tricky thing of grabbing them both and passing things along. Then we'll take it together. But here's what I'd like you to sort of think about as you do this. Where is it that you've needed grace from God? Maybe it's something that you've needed like this week. You had kind of a disaster. You totally dropped the ball. You blew it. Maybe nobody else knows. Maybe a bunch of people know. Maybe it's something that's long-standing in your life and you've always felt guilty about this or sort of undeserving. Whatever it is, let's take a little time and bring that to Jesus and say, thank you. Thank you that it's grace first. Thank you that you accept me even when there's times I don't accept myself. And you accept me. It's grace first. So hold the communion element. Spend a little time just talking to God or meditating on that. And then we'll take the elements together. Because you were forsaken, I'm accepted, you were condemned, and I'm alive and well, and the Spirit lives within me, because you died and rose again. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true, and it's my joy to honor you in all. 
Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, uh, this bread represents my body. My body that is given for you. My body that's given for you, even though you come with your imperfections, with your problems, with your hurts. I give this to you. I give this to you first. It is an extension of grace. And he says, I, I go to the cross because I'd basically rather go to hell in your place than go to heaven without you. And that's what we celebrate every single day of our life as Christians. It's not that we match up. It's that Jesus leads with grace. Take this and eat. And then Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, this cup represents a new covenant, a new arrangement between God and sinful people. The old covenant was kind of based on truth first, but this is a new covenant. And this covenant is not just meant for those of us in this room. It's meant for people that are far from God today. They sit in their houses at home. They are not thinking about church or about Jesus or about God. And yet Jesus looks at them and he says, this covenant's not just for the people that are already in the in crowd. They're for the people that have yet to come. They're the people that you're going to reach. They're the people that you're going to sort of boldly step into their life with this amazing grace and say, you don't need to clean anything up, but I want to extend Jesus' love to you. Who is it that comes to your mind when I say that? Who is it in your life that God has put there 
And your first thought is, there is no way that he would become a Christian. There's no way she would come to church with me. There's no way. Aren't you so glad that somebody didn't say that about you? Wasn't there a time when somebody would have said, there's no way Kevin would ever come? I'm so glad. And so when we drink this, we're not just going to drink this for ourselves today. And we do it gladly. We drink it for the people in Huntington Beach and Fountain Valley, the people you work with, the people your kids go to school with, the people on your block that have the messy yard. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, thank you that you led with grace first. We are totally dependent on that fact. Help us to be a church that always thinks that way. Grace first, then truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to step into that when we fail, when we feel guilty, when we feel like we should be pushed away, that we recognize grace first. And help us to be a people that represent this to the the folks we live and work with in our family, at our jobs, at our schools. Help us to be grace first kind of people. And we pray for those people that we think of that a day not too far in the future, they will sit with us and take communion themselves and recognize that you are the God of grace first. And it's in Jesus' name, his matchless name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.